And the first area we see that in is the area of our attitudes. There's a great example in the Good News newspaper, uh, if you read the article on the general election that they got there. Um, in recent expenses scandal, you'll know it's highlighted how just about every MP across all the parties was guilty in some measure. Um, they, they hadn't falsified anything, they submitted claims, but claims that uh, in their hearts they knew they shouldn't have been submitting very often, claims that were approved at the time, uh, but of course now with the re-examination of those are, are found to have been totally wrong and they were, many were asked to repay monies. Others were uh, considered more serious, they'd actually broken the law and are now of course being threatened, um, being told they're going to be taken to court. But amongst those who were asked to pay monies was one Paul Goggin, Goggins, sorry, a committed Christian in the Northern Ireland office and he was asked to repay £1,075 for a claim that they considered was uh, inappropriately made. When he discovered his mistake, what he actually did was chose to pay back 20 times that, £21,307. You contrast that with the MPs who are saying we're claiming parliamentary privilege although we may have done wrong and have been found guilty of having done wrong nevertheless you shouldn't be prosecuting us because we should be immune from prosecution simply because this all happened in our role as MPs there is a marked contrast isn't there all the difference in the world between how a Christian responds and how a non-Christian responds because as a Christian our attitude has changed changed attitudes, verses 1 to 8 Paul's not saying here that a Christian hasn't got the right to go to court or there aren't times when he needs to go to court he's not saying that we haven't got any association with the law or with legal system at all, he's talking here specifically about one Christian choosing to take another Christian to court in some sort of litigation you know I've got some sort of claim that person should pay me something and I'm going to take them to court to get that money from them Why shouldn't you do that? Well, Paul says, verse 1, it's because you're Christians. And he uses two words there in verse 1, doesn't he? What does he talk of there? The ungodly and the saints. And he's putting those two words in contrast. He's saying, if you're a Christian and the other person is a Christian, you are saints. God has transformed you. You're no longer, in God's view, the sinner that you were, destined for hell. You are now a saint, destined for heaven. That is all the difference in the world. Out there, they are ungodly. Now, why are two saints going out to the ungodly to resolve an issue between them? doesn't make sense, does it? The legal system of this land is established by God. I do not question that. Scripture declares it very clearly. The legal system of the land is good in comparison with many, many other countries. The legal system of this land upholds justice and righteousness in many cases. Nevertheless, it is in the hands of ungodly men and women. Nevertheless, it's not perfect. Nevertheless, God's word only enters into it when they want someone to swear to tell the truth. Outside of that, it has no place in it. It's in measure not enforceable. It's in measure corrupt. It's in measure lacking. It changes. It bends to the mindset of the age and what is politically correct at any time. We don't because we are saints. 
We are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We have God's word as our rule for life. And that says everything. Or it should. Now in case you're thinking this is totally impractical, this issue that arises here, it's absolutely not. I don't know if you're aware the fact church members should be because we're in the process of going through looking at how we can um, protect pastors within the church which has been uh, brought up by the government. It's uh, their concern they should be protected because under law a pastor has no protection in Britain. If, If the church wants to accuse me of something they can do that. I have no legal redress. If they want to throw me out they can throw me out. I can't go to an industrial tribunal. I can't... um, go to, to some court and say, look, I've been wrongfully dismissed from my job, will you do something about it? That cannot happen. Now, the reason it can't happen isn't because the, 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 the government doesn't want to protect pastors. The reason it can't happen is because historically, the church has rightly said it would be totally wrong for a church and a pastor to come into court arguing with each other. That would totally destroy the witness of that church, it would destroy the ministry of that pastor, it would, it would damage Christ, it would bring everything into disrepute if churches and pastors are seen arguing in a court. And they're right. And, and so my, if there is a dispute between me and the church, my redress is to come to the church and trust the church to take a biblical, godly approach to it and try and resolve it. And if we can't resolve it, I would rather be cheated of my pastorate and lose it and go somewhere else than expose the church's dealings to the world and to bring Christ's name into dishonour. This is very, very practical what Paul's talking about here. And he gives two reasons really. The first one's this, verse 2. We're actually in a better position to judge than the judge in the courtroom is. Do you believe that? An issue that arises between two Christians, we as Christians are better qualified and able to make that judgement call than a judge in the courtroom. There's lots of reasons for it. The first one says the Christian has a renewed mind, at least a mind that is being renewed. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Our minds have been renewed by the Holy Spirit within us. The judge in the courtroom's mind's not. His mind is alienated from God and the things of God, unless he happens to be a Christian. Second thing is this, the Spirit of Christ indwells the believer. Paul talks about praying, doesn't he, that I wouldn't know how to pray except the Spirit prompts me. Part of the Holy Spirit's work is to prompt us and to clarify our thinking and to quicken our thinking and our conscience and our, our mind and to give us discernment. And when a dispute arises between two Christians, not only is the Spirit within them, and he should be enabling them to see the rights and wrongs of it and the discernment in it, but others who might be asked to, in some sort of arbitrary role of arbitration or or some role of judgment, get involved, they have the Holy Spirit within them. And, And they're going to be able to look at this issue in a totally different way to which a court will. We've got the authority of Scripture. We we haven't got a a set of laws passed down through the history of of our land, good though many of them are, to make the judgment on. We've got God's word to make it on. His infallible, unchanging word. When a dispute arises, we can come back to God's word and say, well look, what does God say? 
How would God want this handled? How, how would Christ do this if he was here? What will honour him? Friend, you take all these things together and the Christian is in a far, far better state to make the judgement than a judge in a courtroom. Indeed, says Paul, verse 2, we're going to judge the world as Christians. In some measure, in some way, we're going to be involved in God's final judgement. Not only on humanity, but on, on the angels. At the very least, we're going to be there to testify to the rightness of what God says and we're going to be there as trophies redeemed by his grace to prove the, the truth of, of what his word says. And somehow we're going to be involved in this judgment of angels and kings. So Paul says, shouldn't you be able to sort out some little dispute between yourselves? Indeed, he says, verse 4, if a dispute arises, you should be able to pick out the lowest Christian in your church, the least gifted one, if you like, and say, right, you judge between us. And he should be able to do it. And he says, I say, say that to shame you. Because even your most gifted ones aren't sorting it out. He's saying that's how a church should be able to function. Because you're saints, you're so much higher than this world system. And yet that manages to get it right so often. You should be able to get it right far more so. You're in a better position to judge. Secondly, you've lost the second you step into that courtroom. You say, well how can that be? I'm going to that courtroom to win. And Paul says, yeah, but what is it you're going there to win? You might get the money that you're owed. You might get the apology that you're owed. You might win in that sense. But in the bigger sense, you're going to lose totally. What does he mean? Why are we here as Christians? We're here to glorify Christ, aren't we? And we're here to win the nations. And he says, as soon as you step into that courtroom, you've lost that battle. Do you, see, do you see the contradiction that's there he's saying you, you, you're going out to the world and you're saying to them look you need Christ you so much need Christ if you only had Christ in your life you'd, you'd know what life's about you, you'd know why you're here your sin would be forgiven you'd have peace of, of mind and heart you'd have brothers and sisters to love you'd have the fellowship of the saints you'd have God indwelling you, 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 you life would be so different you would be transformed Oh, and we can't sort out this little problem between two of us. Can you sort it out for us, please? Do you see what a nonsense Paul says it is? He says, how can you on the one hand tell these people they desperately need what you've got and on the other hand tell them that you can't sort out what they can sort out and you actually need their help? A total contradiction. No, says Paul, verse 7, and friends, perhaps we need to take this to heart. It's better to put up with being cheated by a brother or sister than to bring the reputation of Christ into disrepute in the world. It's, it's, it's better that you as a church should kick me out on totally false charges and me just walk away and say, okay, I know you're wrong, but I'll leave it there. Then for me to argue with you, and the world get to hear about it. Or any other issue between a church, a Christian and another Christian. We should put Christ's reputation as higher than our rights, 
Our attitude should be totally transformed as Christians. All that should matter to me is that Christ is glorified. And if Christ can get the glory through me being cheated and not get it by me getting my rights, then I want to be cheated, says Paul, because it's more important that Christ is glorified. And it's more important that they get a good image of Christ out there in the world, a right image of Christ, than a wrong one. Our attitudes have to change. And my friend, can I suggest that that really comes back to us on so many ways as Christians. How we glorify Christ in the world. I mean, our lives are under a magnifying glass in the world, aren't they? As Christians. And that's what God wants. He wants the spotlight to be on us. And he wants us to radiate Christ there. So that everything they look at in us, they see something of the beauty of Jesus. Now that means I've got to be so careful, doesn't it? Everything I do out there. Every moment that I'm out there. You know, how I speak in the workplace, how I witness for Christ in the workplace. What things I do or do not get involved in in the workplace. How I speak to my neighbour, how much noise comes out of my home that the neighbours hear. What I put on my blog or my Facebook or my website. Anything and everything, the sum totality of all that comes from me and is seen or heard by the world, I've got to be so careful with. Because my attitude should be, my great desire is that Christ will be glorified in me, in this. The only reason I'm doing this, the only reason I'm saying this, the only reason I'm doing that thing is for the glory of Christ. That, that should be how we think. And so my overwhelming thought before I do it is, how much is Christ going to be glorified in this? Is it really going to enhance how the world thinks of him? Or is it going to bring his name into dishonour and disrepute within the world? We've got to change destination, verse 9 to 11. Let's start at the end of this and work backwards, shall we? And I think looking at time, we're not going to get into the letter verses of this, which I asked Martha to read, it wasn't my intent to look at. We'll leave that over to next time. Let's, let's just focus on these verses 9 to 11. We've got a changed destination. Can I suggest to you we need to be careful how we read these verses or we could misunderstand Paul terribly here. The first question is this, isn't it? How can someone inherit eternal life? To answer that, can I suggest we need to start at the end, verse 11. You were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God that's how we inherit eternal life isn't it by being washed, sanctified, justified in the Lord Jesus Christ let me ask another question who can inherit eternal life and you look at those verses 9 to 11 and Paul lists there all that we would recognise by our, by our eyes and our ears and so on as, as being and certainly to the Pharisee of his day the quote sinners yeah sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes homosexual offenders, thieves greedy drunkards, slanderers swindlers is Paul saying those people can't inherit eternal life? No, he's not. 
What does he say in verse 11? That is what some of you were. In other words, those people can inherit eternal life. The wonderful thing is that nobody's past life is a barrier to them inheriting eternal life. It doesn't matter how terrible a sinner you have been, it doesn't matter what a terrible blasphemer you've been, you can, this is Paul's boast, isn't it, that, that Christ saved me the worst of sinners to prove that no one's life is beyond redemption in Christ Jesus. He says, indeed, some of you there in that church at Corinth were amongst these very groups of people, but you've been saved. How have you been saved? You came to the cross. That's what he says, isn't it? You were washed. What were they washed in? They were washed in the blood of Christ. They've come there, they've repented their sin, they've confessed it. They've first of all identified it as sin, they've recognised that it is sinful and then they've come and they've confessed it to God that they've done these sins. And then they've repented of it, they've turned away from it, they said, with God's, with your help, I don't want to sin like that anymore. I now want to live a life that honours and glorifies you. And they've turned from it, and they've put their trust and their hope in the merit of Christ. They've said, Lord, I don't deserve your forgiveness, I deserve your wrath. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what he did, because of his perfect life, because of his substitutionary death, because he bore in his body the wrath of my sin, Father, would you forgive me? a penitent sinner. And here's my life, Lord, take it and use it as pleases you. And they've been washed in the blood of Christ. They've been sanctified. They've been justified. God has taken the guilt of their previous life and put it on Christ and the righteousness of Christ and clothed them in that. And they stand as new creations in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, and they inherit eternal life. That's who inherits eternal life. That is one of the most wonderful statements on conversion and salvation that I know in Scripture. My friend, is it possible there's someone here this morning who's thinking, I'm not good enough to be a Christian? Can I tell you something, very gently? You are 100% right in the sense that you're not good enough for God. In that sense. You're 100% right. You are not good enough. But my friend, can I tell you that that's why you need to become a Christian. If you were good enough, you wouldn't need to be a Christian, would you? If you were good enough, heaven would be your right. If you were good enough, you could just come to God and say, God, I'm here on my merit. Nobody is. That's the whole point. You are bad enough to be a Christian. You're bad enough to come and say, God, I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. I don't deserve heaven, I'll never earn heaven. I'll never be able to stand before you and say, look God, I should come into heaven because, and point to anything in you. But that doesn't prevent you inheriting eternal life. That's what Jesus Christ died for. He died so that sinners might be forgiven. What God requires of you is that you recognise before him that you are a sinner. You see, the problem is that in our generation, many of those things Paul listed there are no longer even considered sinful. But God says they are. And God adds to that elsewhere in Scripture, liars. 
Jesus says if you've so much as looked at a woman lustfully. So the end result, the bottom line is that every human being without question is a sinner before God. And we know that. I don't believe there's any human being who doesn't know that. Not in the bottom of your heart. Everyone knows they've thought or done something wrong. But what God requires is that we recognise that it's sinful. We stop trying to excuse it. We stop trying to justify it. We stop looking to the law of the day and say, well, the government says it's okay. God says it's wrong, therefore it is wrong. Therefore it is sin. And we come to God and we confess that. We repent of it. We ask his forgiveness for it. And we plead on the merit of Jesus Christ. And we recognise that our response to that must be that we yield our lives to him unreservedly to live for his glory. And when we do that, we have a changed destination. Heaven is now our home, not here. Heaven is our goal. Christ is our life. So what is Paul saying about here then in these verses 9 to 11? He's pointing out to some of the Christians there in that church that they haven't made the change in their lives that they should have done. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? You know, that is what you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those things should have been kicked out of your life. They've got no place in the life of a Christian, is what Paul's saying. Now he's not saying that we live a perfect sinless life from the moment we're saved. Scripture clearly teaches that's not the case. But we do not deliberately sin. We have to come to God at the end of the day. I have to come to God at the end of every day and ask his forgiveness. I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, mind and soul that day. Try as I will, I have not done it. I've not loved my neighbour as myself when my neighbour includes everyone I know. I know I haven't done that. I try with all my heart to do it and I know at the end of the day I've failed again and I come to God and I seek his forgiveness. But my friends, that doesn't excuse me going out and deliberately sinning. The sins he lists here are those that we can control. The sins he lists here are not ones that happen subconsciously or in a moment and, and, and we've... we've ask God's forgiveness and we dealt with it. These are blatant, obvious, clear modes of life that are sinful. And Paul says, that is how non-Christians live, not how Christians live. And as Wayne Grudem said rightly on Wednesday, if you persist in sin like this, if this is your lifestyle, if, if this is how you see living as being, then it calls into immediate question the reality of your profession of faith. Because this, the people who live like this, says Paul, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're continuing to live like this, it is proof that you're not truly of those who inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not truly those who have been washed, sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? Not that these things bar you from heaven, but these things prove the falseness of the profession of faith that you've made, which then bars you from heaven. If you continue to live a life like this, do you see? 
Oh my friend, we're going to stop there because the time's against us. Are you saved this morning? Can I ask? Are you saved? Are you covered by the blood of Christ? Can you identify a point in your life where you've really understood the horror of your own sin? That it's, it's brought you to tears. It's cut you to the heart. You've recognised that before a holy God you could not possibly stand. And, and it has shocked you and it has horrified you and the one thing you've desired above all else is, is that that could somehow be forgiven and you've understood the wonder of what Jesus Christ did to make that possible. And you've got down on your knees and before a holy God you've confessed your sin and the horror of it and you've turned from it and put your trust in Christ. Have you done that? If you haven't, what stops you? Is it some idea that you're not good enough for Christ? You're not, so let's leave it there. You're not good enough for Christ. But Christ doesn't come to save good people. He came to save repentant people. Get down your knees and ask his forgiveness. And let me ask you this, if you're saved, are you changed? When I say that, I guess we could all work down a little tick list of those sins there and say, well, I don't do that one, I don't do that one, I don't do that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you changed? Jesus said it's not just the doing of the act, it's even thinking the act, isn't it? It's not just the things that everyone else sees. Are you changed in there? Are you changed in there? Do the things that once looked attractive to you now look horrible to you? Do the things that once held you captive, are you now released from them? Are you changed? You've got a new destination. You're going to heaven if you're a Christian. That's your home. Jesus is your king. He's radiant in his holiness and he wants us to be. Because he wants us to image him out there in the world. And he wants the world to look at us and see see him. And he wants the world to listen to us and hear him. And he wants them to see our good deeds and glorify the Father on the day he visits. My friend, how is it going for you? Let's pray.